say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. We made this. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world? A boy! <laughs> Duncan, can I trust you with something? Yes, always, you know that. I've been having dreams about a girl on Arrakis. I don't know what it means. Dreams make good stories. Everything important happens when we're awake. Yeah, you. Put on some muscle? I did? No. We are House Atreides. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! I know you. There's something awakening in my mind. You need to face your fears. Come with me. You need to be ready. You never met Harkness before. They're not human, they're brutal. The Duke's son sees too much. This is I do. Kill them all. off the ground go this is an extermination they're picking my family off one by one let's fight like demons dad what if i'm not the future of house atreides a great man doesn't seek to lead He's called to it. But if your answer is no, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. My son. If anything happens, will you protect Paul? With my life. Together, can we stand a chance? It's time.
Hello and welcome to Real Talk, the official movie podcast of the We Made This Podcast Network. I'm your host, Tony Black, and Real Talk is a show designed to both react to new cinema and also find a way to talk about the movies we love, like, and maybe sometimes loathe. In this episode, we're talking about Denis Villeneuve's epic adaptation of Frank Herbert's seminal science fiction novel from 1965, Dune. Set over 8,000 years in the future, in a universe dominated by a galactic imperium, the noble house Atreides are dispatched by the Emperor to run Arrakis, a desert planet where the Imperium mine a unique resource, a spice that enables interstellar travel. Heir to the dukedom, the young Paul Atreides is dreaming of the mysterious natives on the planet, the Fremen, and finds himself and his family caught up in a devious Imperial plot and the ancient prophecies of a returning messiah, with devastating consequences both political and personal for everyone on the planet known as Dune. And my guest to discuss this movie, this much-anticipated movie, is Luke Winch, host of the Observing the Pattern and Make It So podcast on We Made This, and self-confessed Dune megafan. So I think that probably describes us quite aptly both, Luke, doesn't it, in this case? I've been waiting since the age of 15 years old to do this <laughs> podcast. Even though I didn't know what a podcast was at the age of 15, I, I've been waiting I've for been this. waiting. Same. I, uh, that brings me to a slight little anecdote as of the other night. So um, on Thursday evening, uh, we had one of those weird little house situations that just you can't predict in that basically my phone became la- trapped in my wife's car and the battery on her car keys died, right? So this is happening at night and I'm then panicking because the only way I can access my ticket for Dune, which I'm seeing the next day, is on my phone. So I'm like, oh my God, I've got to go, I've got to go. And I literally drove like 20 minutes, 10 miles down the road to get batteries at like half past 11 at a shitty Tesco to try and get this fixed. And when I got back, it didn't work. And I was like, oh my God. And I said to my wife, um, I said, I've been waiting all my life for this and I want to see it on the cinema screen. (laughs) (laughs) To which she has quite rightly mercifully mocked me since because I was very, very, uh, you know, first world problems because I was terrified I wouldn't be able to get to the lovely IMAX cinema in Southampton where I saw Dune in order to watch it <laughs> on the Friday. So that just is, I mean, that's a long-winded way of saying I feel exactly the same, Luke, in that we've both been waiting for this since we were children, I think, this film. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, along with Lord of the Rings, I think the these two books, you know, I, I was dreaming of them being a film when I read them as a teenager and, you know, I got, I got, what could almost be a near perfect trilogy of films for Lord of the Rings. And, uh, and then, and then we've got this and it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very exciting. Um, suffice to say, I did get there. I did, we did manage to get the phone out the car and I did make it and I saw it in IMAX, which I'm very happy about. So yeah, it's, it's a film that's much anticipated for us as fans and for the, you know, the listening public generally and the watching public. So, we're going to pick through the film. We're going to talk about some of the previous stuff. We're going to talk in depth about certain things. And this is obviously one of those kind of first reactions to the podcast, really. You know, we, we're fresh out of it. Time will change probably how it's viewed. We've got obviously a second part to come. This is only half of the story. So it's going to be nice to sort of digest this pretty fast. So let's start with the basic overall thoughts then coming out of Dune as huge fans. What did you think of it, Luke? It's a masterpiece. Thanks for having me on, Tony. That's it for now. <laughs> Cheers. We'll see you next week on Real Talk. When we'll be... Yeah, yeah. No, it's masterpiece. Uh, it, okay. 
I went to see it last night. I am still on a bit of a high, so I will try and remain as objective as possible. But I will say as a as a cinematic experience, as a filmic experience, it, it could almost be a masterpiece. Um, I haven't felt this way leaving a cinema since I, was, since I saw uh, Lord of the Rings or Fury wow. Road or Endgame. You know, those kind of, those kind of when, you, when you leave the cinema and you are on that high from those kind of movies, this is how I felt when I left the cinema. I was quite speechless for the first five minutes. I was walking home with my partner, Mel, and I literally didn't know what to say because it was, I was just blown away by how immersive the, the, you know, this film was. Did you feel this way after you watched The Hobbit? films <laughs> no i didn't um that, Quite right. that, that had a very i had a very different reaction to, to the hobbit yeah I, I i get completely where you're coming from like you know the reason i was so desperate to see an imax is that everybody including Villeneuve himself has been saying imax is the way to watch this film because obviously in the u.s it's come out both on hbo max and on cinemas at the same time which caused a lot of you know back and forth and ire and things like that and there'll be lots of people who've watched this at home on HBO Max. Fair play, if that's the case in the States, you've done that. But you're, re- you're missing out. There's, there's no two ways about it. The, wa- the way to see this film is on as big a screen as possible. So going and watching it in an IMAX with the full immersion, the sound, right from the opening shot, which I was so happy to, to see was the desert. Because I thought, this has surely got to open with the dunes, with the desert. But you see the spice through the air you know, crackling through the air as you hear Chani's voice and, and Hans Zimmer's score. And I was just like, oh, yeah. As soon as, soon as, that, as, soon as that started, Luke, I was like, yeah, he's done it. This is it. This is good. He's done it. He's done it. This is exactly how you do it. And it didn't disappoint from there on in for me. And even before that opening shot, before the studio, Warner Brothers studio thing came up, did you notice that weird, uh, there, there was, I can't remember oh, what yeah. the exact line was. But it was done in a in that kind of guttural throat voicey thing that we that we kind of yeah. we see later when we go to the Emperor's um, planet. But that came even before the studio emblem came up, and I was like, "Whoa!" And that yeah. put me back in my seat even before anything began. Yeah, wasn't it something like "Dreams are the voices of the deep" or something something along something those like lines? That. And it yeah. was like that kind of guttural. It was yeah, it was hot. and I was like, took me aback. I was like, "What the? F- what was that?" Like, and yeah. then uh, later on, I realised once we were into the film, I was like, "Oh, that was something to do with it." I thought it was some sort of weird, like marketing thing for some. I didn't, I didn't necessarily think it was connected to the film. It's probably I should have done, but like, yeah. So right straight away, the, there's an immersion into mood, isn't there, in this film, and getting you visually and in terms of narrative and story in and sound in the mix straight away you know and, and, and i mean he, he he borrows us i suppose he does the same in some ways as the 1984 version which we'll come to in a little bit but uh with starting with a voiceover but it, it's it's a it, it's not as it's a different kind of thing in that you know chani sort of haunts the film in many ways throughout so having her narrate the backstory essentially of where we are with the harkonnens and the fremen and and, and everything like that i think was a very good move a very good way to start this set the scene establish key points we need to know before we get to Caladan and stuff and it kicks off so yeah I thought that was a very smart way of introducing the film what I found quite intriguing and fascinating as I was watching the film and I I was kind of thinking about it you know as well as being completely immersed but I was thinking about how Denis is juggling audience accessibility 
and then also mm. keeping the weirdness of the source yeah. material. And I think for the most part, there's a few little niggles that we can get to later on, which I've kind of thought about this morning. But apart from that, I think he gets the balance almost perfectly. I think because Mel had, had 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 never read the book, she she'd only watched the 1984 film like 10 or 15 years ago, so she was going in practically blind without anything else. And you know, she 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 really enjoyed the movie. She loved it. So from an audience accessibility point i think he's done a good job and then from the super fans point of view us he's got you know he's captured that esotericism and weirdness that the book has as well so i think he's done that very very well yeah i agree actually i think that was one of the things that really stood out to me in that i think we when we'd spoken about it you know before and and, and we and we talked about it on on forums and and online and stuff one of the things i think you and i definitely agreed on and we talked about was it needs to be weird you know the film needs to be strange. It can't just be... And this is where I actually think the marketing of this film has been very, very smart. And I think it's one of the reasons why so far it's doing really well at the box office. And and lots of people for the last couple of years have been saying, oh, June's going to tank, it's going to... cut." And I was like, it's not. It's not because of the way they're doing this. Firstly, the anticipation of that Villeneuve is kind of at the top of his game and everyone knows he's basically the perfect director for this, living director right now, I think, for June. I can't imagine anyone else being better for this they've got the absolutely the right director they've got an incredible cast they've got good creatives writing it all the elements were were coming together for this way before we got into that cinema so i was confident it was going to do well but the marketing has been very savvy in that it's played up the cast particularly most of the marketing has been about seeing timothy chalamet and rebecca ferguson and then you know oscar isaac and all these people in glamorous photo shoots or in exotic locations around the world and you know, the, the trailers have been very much foregrounding them as these, these big stars. And they've, in a way, they've downplayed some of the weirdness in the trailers. And and that was a smart move in that we knew it was going to be quite, you know, esoteric and grand. But they didn't go full bore on the strangeness. And I think that's one of the reasons people have got into that cinema. Yet at the same time, I think once they're in there, yes, some of the things in there, or they'll go, what the hell is this? This is weird. But it's not too off-putting. It is balanced with... A logical, understandable narrative that keeps propelling throughout. And I think that's that's the reason this has clicked together. You're right about the cast. I mean, I think Denis has been incredibly intelligent in his casting because not only has he cast extremely good actors, he's probably rounded up the sexiest actors on the planet. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and this, this helps has. draw the crowd in. It helps put bums on the seats of cinemas. And, you know, like you said, he has put them at the forefront of marketing. There's so many little short videos and films of, of Timothy and Zendaya looking absolutely gorgeous, you know, asking you to come and see the film. So whoever is in front of the marketing side of things is doing a very good job. And, I, and I'm hoping that they are attracting people who don't know the source material and, you know, bringing them into the cinema. And hopefully they're, they're, they're enjoying this very unique science fiction film. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, that's the thing, you know, Chalamet, Zendaya both have massive followings independent of Doom fandom. You know, they have entire legions of, of particularly teenagers. I read a funny thing on Twitter that a guy had said, at least five teenage girls walked out of June halfway through. <laughs> he said, surely they're just Chalamet <laughs> fans who've gone, this isn't what this isn't what he normally does. Um, but it proved that they're going, you know, these kids are going to see these people. And yeah, okay, they might not, not some of them might never get June or they might not like it until they're older, but they've come in, they've done the box office service, all power to them. So, you know, they've been smart in who they've cast and they've balanced it with those kind of actors with 
people like Oscar Isaac, you know, who's who's a kind of middle-aged actor who only has to get on a red carpet with Jessica Chastain and he's smoking up the internet, you know, with tons yeah. of thirst. So, you know, they've and Rebecca Ferguson, obviously. I mean, she's my, like, number one movie crush, I think, of all time, that woman. I worship the ground she walks on. She's amazing. She's beautiful and she's incredibly talented. And, and you know, I'm a middle-aged man. So, you know, uh, even independent of June, if Rebecca Ferguson's in a, Rebecca Ferguson's in a film, I'm going to go, I want to see that film. So, you know, it's smart. The way they've done this is very smart. They've appealed to multiple layers of, fan, of fans of different people, of different things. And I, I, th- I think it will pay off. I really do think it's going to pay off in a big way. So, yeah, we both love it. Great. We'll come back to that. Let's spool back. <laughs> Let's spool back a bit. Before we talk a bit more in depth about the movie, let's talk about our personal connections a bit to June then and some of the previous stuff. So um, you mentioned that you, we both had mentioned we, 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 uh, we've been looking forward to this as children. You read the book as a child then, I take it, or when you were a teenager? Yeah, I read the book when I was about 15 years old. My, my older brother, uh, uh, you know, I have to thank him basically for making me a sci-fi and fantasy geek because he was when, when he was in his 20s and he passed, you know, he passed down... June the book to me. He got me into uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, so my, my my love for science fiction grew from from like his passion. So mm. yeah, That's reading nice. the book when I was fifteen, it a lot of it kind of went over my head because I think it's it's a very dense, very dense book, and the world building is is quite extraordinary. So I read it and I kind of I enjoyed it on a on a surface level science fiction adventure, and then. I think I read it again in my early 20s and started to understand the core themes behind it and looking into it a lot deeper and all these different mysticism and esotericism and all this kind of stuff that I started to get interested in at that age. Um, And, you know, the likes of the X-Files and stuff really started to, to expand my mind into thinking into things like that. So, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it's a book that I, like Lord of the Rings, I have treasured since since my early teens, and it's it's you know it's that and Lord of the Rings were left an impression on me that few other works of literature have really. Yeah, it's 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 been it's been part of my cultural upbringing. I, I, same for me, really. Yeah, I think I read it at a very similar age. I think I was teens, mid-teens, and like you, you don't always. When you're that age, you don't, I mean, as a grown adult, some of it sometimes goes above my head, yeah. some of Frank Herbert's writing. That's okay, I think, because I think the the essence of what the book was, the, you know, the mysticism, the dreaminess of that book, the strangeness of it really captivated me. And I think the more you read it, and it, it I've always said it's my, been my favourite novel, and I stick to that now, even to this day. What I really, really want, and I'm sure you're the same, I don't know if you've seen it, I really want that Folio Society visual book have you seen this online yes uh, i have i mean it costs a bomb but my goodness that is just a work of beauty you know um yeah so it, it is my favorite novel i think and for some very similar reasons i think it was very captivating and even though it's massively complex in terms of what it's doing it is also quite lyrically simple in many ways in that how, in how it carries you through in terms of paul's journey and I think that's one of the things this film really... Ma- I mean, it's a very faithful adaptation, this movie, this part one movie we're talking about, I think, for the most part. And, and I think it really carries that through line for the, the ease of understanding that book well. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And what I've... I mean, I, I last read June, I think only about 
last year or the year before and and what i've noticed as as a much you know as a as a more mature adult and i've experienced the world a bit more is it's very much a book of its time as well you know it's, it was mm. written in 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 the 60s published in 65 so there are elements in there that shall we say probably wouldn't be very comfortable with today's kind of social cultural views there there is a little bit of white savior syndrome in there a, a, a bit and the kind of uh, appropriation of, of middle eastern and islamic beliefs and mysticism you know and we, we can get into it that i think the film has toned some of those key words down a bit but uh but but the essence of what what the prophecy is and and this kind of mysticism that that permeates through the film is still there they've just they've just toned down the terminology i think a little bit there have been accusations though of arab appropriation with this movie i think and i I think really that's an issue less with the movie this movie i think it's more the story itself as you say i think it goes it goes back and and, you know there are multiple takes i think some maybe someone of arab extraction will have a different viewpoint on this to someone like you or i you know where I, I I think anyone maybe who is appropriate approaching it from that perspective who hasn't read June Messiah maybe and beyond doesn't necessarily know that Paul Atreides' journey isn't Luke Skywalker. Mm. <laughs> you know he he's it's not very different. <laughs> it's very different. Paul is not necessarily the good guy in this story at all. Uh, and and so I think really it's about a wait and see approach in that. Yes, this might approach that white saviour idea, you know, this white messiah coming down to the this Arab population, but it's not really that in a way, in many ways, and there's, there's things that will come later that I think will, will put this into a different context. But, you know, there's lots of different approaches, and I think it will depend on where you are culturally. That's how you view June. I think for you and I, from where we sit, we find it very beguiling. And I think, what, what do you think about the, the rest? I mean, I presume you've read... The rest of the of the of the original Frank Herbert. I mean, there's loads. There's Frank Herbert's like seven original novels before he died, and then since you've had his his son Brian Herbert, and then Kevin J. Anderson, the the, the novelist, expand the Dune universe into prequels and you know all kinds of extra stuff, which has just widened it out massively. How much of that stuff have you read? Not much, to be honest. I read. I think I read the the two sequels, and that's where I stopped. Yeah. I think. Do you mean Herbert sequels? Yeah, oh, Herbert okay. sequels. I, I've I've not read any of Brian's stuff, and I've not read any of Kevin J. Anderson ah. stuff. Yeah. So Herbert, the, the first two was June Messiah, which came comes after June. That's right. And then yeah. Children of Dune, yeah, which is the third book. Um, and then beyond that, you've got God Emperor of Dune, Heretics of Dune, and uh, Chapter House Dune. I think are the rest and the Herberts, and then. I think there were there were there was an unfinished or he'd started an eighth one I think or a seventh one or an eighth one one of the two anyway and I don't think that was ever but it might have been finished by his son now I'm not quite sure but then the 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 three I remember reading when I was quite young were the three immediate prequels which was House of Treaty House of Trades House Carino and House Harkonnen which which were the prelude to Dune which were a bit like Rogue One is to Star Wars now yeah um, it's that kind of thing. Uh, which were very good, and I really enjoyed those. And then th- there's also some really historical ones, like uh, oh, I can't remember the exact name of them, but they go back to the to much closer to the hu- to humanity's time, and it's all about a computer revolution, and it all gets a bit Terminator at that point. But it's very good, it's very very weird and dark and horrible, actually, all that stuff. 
but it's it's very interesting and they've done other since and i have i haven't read them all to be honest but I, I have enjoyed a lot of what i've read but i don't think any of them really come to quite capture what herbert did in those in those novels i think he had he had a way but then you know what realistically luke i I, I don't think anything really beats the, this first book. I don't, I don't think any of the any of the stories really can capture that first Dune novel. All of Herbert's stuff subsequently gets weirder and weirder and weirder as it goes on. And, and a lot of people have said, I've no idea how they could possibly adapt something like God Emperor of Dune, like for, in this kind of way. It's too strange. And I, and, and I just don't know if that's ever going to happen. I, I, I feel like if we're going to get any of these big Dune movies based on the books, we're going to get... We're going to get Dune Messiah, we're going to get Children of Dune, and then it will be prequels, frankly. So I, I just can't imagine them doing the rest. Yeah, and I think what the beauty of the book is, is that you can read Dune and stop there and just enjoy it as a book, you know, as a novel yeah, by itself. Yeah. You don't have to continue. If you want to continue, then you can do so. And really, I think, I mean, I know Denis has, you know, he's talked about how he'd love to say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'd love to adapt more and more, but even if he left it at two parts, you know, if he gets to actually finish June the book with his second part of his film and it and it stopped there, I'd be happy. But if he has the ability and the studio funds him to do more, then I'll gladly accept that as well. But, uh, but if he just gets to do part two, I'm happy with that. He has said that he wants to do Doom Messiah as well. He wants to he wants to do a trilogy in his mind. So obviously, even though that's only two stories, essentially, it will end up being three films. Doom Messiah is a much smaller book. It's more like a, a an epilogue in a way. So you could do that in one movie, I think, realistically. Yeah. So I think the he studios do... like trilogies as well, don't they? So yeah, it, you, they could quite easily do that. Yeah, and with that book, you can still keep the same cast. You've still got Paul. You've still got Chani. You've still got a lot of the same people. So you could absolutely do that. Whereas when you get to Children in June onwards, the cast starts to change quite significantly by then. So I think that I, I'd be—I would imagine actually—I could see that continuing on much more in in TV series form, really lavish HBO TV shows because they're already talking about spin-offs and things like this. I think we will get a the new trilogy personally, um, and that'll be it for the movies for him anyway. But but you know, there's there's lots of options. There's lots and lots of stuff they can do. And because there's loads of books out there. What about the previous films then? What's your relationship with, well, I say previous films. We had, we've had the 1984 David Lynch adaptation, which is very famous. And then we've had the 2000 uh, miniseries, which were the, the Dune miniseries for the Sci-Fi Channel. And then the Children of Dune miniseries. And I think the Dune series might have done Dune and Dune Messiah in one. I can't remember. Um, but then they did Children of Dune as well. Have you seen them and what's your relationship to them? Uh, the, the 1984 film I have seen, my abiding memory of that film is Internal Monologue. 
Um, <laughs> it, there's just lots and lots of lots and lots of long pondering shots at Karl McLaughlin's eyes yeah. or his mouth or the side of his head and just his internal monologues going over and over and over again. It's an interesting film. It's very it's very confusing and a bit messy. You know, Lynch has famously disowned it because he he was you know there was there was a lot of studio tampering, and I think he's just annoyed that he didn't get to complete the vision that he wanted to because there is, I think you can tell watching it. I think you can tell the bits where Lynch was really getting full control of what he wanted on the screen because there's some really weird shit in there, really mm. weird mm. stuff, um, and I like that. I I think the. I think the set design and art and art direction of that film is is fantastic, and Denis definitely taken some inspiration from some of that into this film, particularly the still suits. I think are, are quite similar. Mm. Um, I, I I know that both films made the still suits black, whereas in the film they're kind of more blended into the sand. But you know, from a from a filmic point of view, you have to differentiate between the background and your and your characters. So having them in black makes them stand out in the camera a bit more. Otherwise, you've got lots of problems with light and shadow and all those kind of things, mm. you know, mm. technical things. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah, my abiding memory is, is, is lots of internal monologues and long pondering shots and Sting uh, with his shirt off. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It is, it is massively of its time, that one. Mm, yes, um, definitely. And, and obviously it came out of the fact that during the 70s, Alejandro Jodorowsky wanted to make a massive Dune film there's a great documentary called Yodorovsky's Dune, if, if anyone hasn't seen this, which goes into... I, I'm not... I, I'll be honest. I came out of it not really liking Yodorovsky. I, I, I thought he was really pretentious. But the ideas behind... And, and in a way, I'm, I, I, I'm kind of glad it wasn't made because I think it would have been mad. I think it would have been... I would have been... It wouldn't have done the book justice. It would have been fascinating. It would have been truly fascinating because he had people like Salvador Dali going to be in it as the emperor and all this kind of thing. It would have been bonkers. And fascinating, but it wouldn't have been Dune. It wouldn't have been the film we've got now, which is the actual proper faithful, I think, adaptation of Dune. So I'm not sad, really, that that didn't happen. But it's fascinating to see the production of it and the the creation of it, a lot of which then fed into Ridley Scott's Alien in 1979 as well, because a lot yeah, of the H.R. Yeah. Uh, Giger did a lot of design work on Dune um, for Jodorowsky and stuff. So it's got a bit of a legacy in the 70s in terms of science fiction that it went on to inspire. Um, so I would encourage anyone to find that documentary and watch it because it's fascinating. Charlotte Rampling, I think, was originally wanted to play Lady Jessica in his version. But oh, cool. She okay. But she, but she declined the offer due to a scene that involved 2,000 extras defecating at once. <laughs> that That's how weird Alejandro's version was going to be. Yeah. And, and you know, we think Villeneuve's you know, Harkon and Spider and, the, and the, the, the ship that opens out to have a carpet on the landing, you know, he's weird. But it's got nothing on... Uh, nothing. <laughs> Yodorovsky. Exactly. And if I'm honest, I can't blame her, to be honest. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I just... I, I, I think it, it, it would have been a mixed bag. But then, then you get Lynch's version, which is, you know, Dino De Laurentiis desperately trying to make... You know, Ridley Scott was thinking about making it as well around that time you've got a lot of these interesting science fiction films you've got Blade Runner which obviously then Villeneuve has a connection to and he makes a sequel and all these kind of things but the, yeah the 1984 film is, is, is a fascinating misfire it's got a great cast it's got some really fun moments um, it's got some wacky ideas like you say like the guild navigator coming out of the thing and and just Kenneth Mac, um, Macmillan's just really mad interpretation of Baron Harkonnen which is really yes. gross 
Um, yeah. And he was fantastic in that role. So it's got it's got a lot of fun, it's a lot of fun to it. But you know, you can't squeeze June, and this is one of the things Villeneuve's been saying. You cannot squeeze this book into two hour film. It's impossible, you know. So and the fact that Lynch tried to do that was simply because he wanted to make a longer movie, and he was cut down by the uh, studio. And uh, and you know, it, it, it's not a surprise that David Lynch doesn't want to talk about this film and has refused to for years because it's not. I don't think the film he would have intended to make in any way. But again, he's not the right director for it. You know, he's, it's, you need that balance between strange and somebody who can carry, I think, the, the grand sweep of something like this. And I don't know if David Lynch is, is that guy. He's a brilliant director. We know he's, he's a great creative from the things he's done. But, you know, it, it, again, he wasn't quite the right guy. And I think you see that in that fascinating but flawed Dune movie back then. Yeah, and I think Denis, what he's done with his previous two science fiction films is... In Arrival, he is, you know, he is honed his skills of making a very personal, intimate, weird movie. And then with Blade Runner 2049, he's got the scope and the epicness. So those two films were, were literally test runs, really, for you know, to, to, to work on June because he's able to take all those things that he learned in those two films and then bring it to June. 100%. And he said as much. He has said as much that he was asked, you know, could you have made June without Arrival, Blade Runner, you know, 2049 he said no he said no i couldn't have done they are all part of the the journey toward dune really but uh, did you watch the the sci-fi shows then did you watch the sci-fi channel tv series no do you know they they passed me by i the the only thing i know about them is that young a young um james James mcavoy McAvoy. yeah yeah yeah. that's that's all i know about them really i've never seen them uh I, i i think i will seek them out i think they're actually you can watch them for free on amazon so i might i might Look them up just just for uh, researchers' stake. I would definitely only do it if you've got a bit of time to kill. <laughs> to be honest, right? Okay. They are quite flat, really. They're quite flat and dull, um, and they're not. They, you know, they're quite cheap as well, cheaply made. I, I I've never really thought much of them. I think I watched them once, and that was it. And I was just like, no, nah, no, nah, this is now you do June. You know, I mean, I, it's I always imagine isn't it? It's a sci-fi channel, and credit to them, you know, for that. And there's been some lovely stuff going around on Twitter that James McAvoy was asked about his part in Children of Dune recently. And he, he cited how he had some really important and nice acting advice from um, the, actor, the actor Claudia Black, who was in Farscape years yes. ago. And um, Stargate, I think, as well. And then she was on Twitter saying how lovely it was that she was referenced. It was a very nice tweet, tweet exchange, tweet thread going on, which was lovely. So, you know, memories of that. But um, it's, you know, it's not, it's not McAvoy's best work, necessarily. It's, it's just... It's just, it, it, you need to, if you were going to, I always thought they would do Dune, HBO, as a Game of Thrones style, 10 part, 10, you know, 8 series epic. And for years, I always thought that was the way to do it, to be honest. After Game of Thrones, I thought, do Dune like this, it'd be brilliant. You could really, you could really poise it out. You, could, you know, you could spend half a season doing that first movie, even a whole season doing that first movie, you know, and that first book even, and really stretch it out and really dig in and get into it. And obviously that never happened, but the sci-fi channel approach just isn't the way to do it, you know, because you need you need the spectacle, you need the money, you need the visuals, you need the immersion. So either of these approaches that from the past just did just didn't nail it, which is why we've spent years waiting for Denise's version, essentially, for a version that really does this book justice, because it has all of the elements to be. Well, although a lot of people said, didn't they, that they thought June was unfilmable. Over the years, 
Yeah, um, I mean, they said the same about Lord of the Rings, and then Peter yeah. Jackson came along and went, uh, hold my beer. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, and, and, and made and made a, a fantastic companion to the books. I mean, you know, that there are there are things that he had to change and things, that, you know, characters that he had to leave out. And I'm sure we can talk about that in a minute with, with this film. But, but he made essentially the perfect companion to the films and kept yeah. the core spirit, themes and story. But that's the thing. I don't know. I don't really think Villeneuve has had to leave a great deal out of this, you know, and that's why... It's a bit like, well, Dune isn't as was it was never as unfilmable as as Lord of the Rings in theory. And then, like you say, Jackson came along and did it really well because he he cut bits away and he he, he part he, you know he found the through lines to do it. And I think you know it's the same with this. It's it's there are certain things you're never going to quite be able to dig into in the depth they, that that the book will you know and a lot of the ideas and that's in, that happens in every translation of a book to screen. But I think. Saying Dune was unfilmable was just maybe it just was maybe it just wasn't the right kind of people in the in the chair doing it. Maybe they didn't have the right approach. Maybe they didn't understand this material in the way I think that Villeneuve and his team have. I mean, I think when you when you approach a work like Dune, you just have to you know you have to in 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 the film world you have to wait for the right director. You have to wait for the right team of people who have the intelligence and love of the source material and the skills to produce something like this. You need the technology to catch up as well. Uh, you know, it's it's something that James Cameron always does. You know, he creates the technology that he requires for his films. So mm. Dune could not have been made five years ago. That's, that. you know, that's how much the, the cameras have evolved, how much set design and CGI, all this stuff has evolved to the point where Dune can now be made and actually do the story and the scope justice so i think it was uh, it was uh the time was right and we had the right cast we had the right actors who could step into these roles we had the right director who obviously adores the source material understands it completely so we have reached you know we've reached the time where june is now june is june is 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 here and you're right about Villeneuve. he was asked about a really good interview in little white lies where he's asked about this about when he encountered the book and his relationship. I'm going to read you what he says. It's a, it's a little bit of a chunk of, of stuff, but it, it sort of establishes what we've been saying. He said, I read Dune when I was very young, specifically at the moment when I was starting to dream big about cinema, following filmmakers, starting to be very interested by what a director was doing, being drawn to the filmmaking process. And I remember starting to do storyboards and early drawings of Dune with my best friend at the time, who wanted to be a director as well. We were obsessed with this world. I'm not saying that I was dreaming to make a movie about it right away, but definitely I was deeply inspired by it. For me, it was one of my big dreams. If you'd said to me, ultimately, what would you like to do as a filmmaker? I would have said, Dune. When it landed in Hollywood, when I landed in Hollywood and people were asking me, what would you, what would be your dream? It's always those four letters that were coming out of my mouth. It's a book that stayed with me through the years for several reasons. And still today, every time I open it, I get the same kind of deep joy reading it. Now that... If that's not a, a you know a, a fan destined to make this film, I don't know what is. Like he's he's loved it since he was a kid. He understands it. He's immersed in it, and I think I think it shows. I really do think it shows. And I think it would have been, it would have we would have had a lesser film had the elements that were that were potentially coming together after this before this ha- happened. So after Lord of the Rings was a big success, it was then sort of passed around earmarked by various different people over the years paramount wanted to do it with peter berg directing he's done like battleship mm. and 
Yeah. I don't rate him very much, to be honest. So, you know, I wasn't that, I wasn't sad when he, when he left. Pierre Morel in 2010, who did, who's done like um, Taken with Liam Neeson. But I mean, you know, when you compare, there's nothing necessarily wrong with him, but when you compare him or Peter Berg to what Villeneuve has done, I mean, there's, they're not even in the same league, are they? In terms <laughs> no, of, really. do you know what I mean? And in terms of scope, and so they couldn't quite get, Paramount dropped it in the end because they couldn't quite sort out the rights. But then he was picked up in 2017, 2016 by Legendary, who then um, got Denis Villeneuve very quickly involved. And he then started collaborating with Brian Herbert and, and talking to him. And then it all came all came together and he pulled in a lot of the collaborators he, he, he was on with Arrival, Blade Runner, film editor Joe Walker, Patrice Ver- Vermette, production designer, um, Paul Lambert, visual effects. Uh, and um, he did want Roger Deakins to be the cinematographer, but then he he pulled out and was replaced by Greg Fraser. And, I, and to be fair, I, I think Greg Fraser, if he doesn't get an Oscar for this, or at least Seriously, get nominated. Yeah. I mean, it, what are we even doing? What are we even talking about in terms of movies? So, like, he's done an amazing job. I think Roger Deakins doing Dune would have been... I mean, I think you've had a lot of film nerds spattering their screen in their seats. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> it's almost like a, a dream. But, you know, yeah, I think I think the team he's assembled here is a combination of people he's tr- he works really well with, he's trusted, who have shown they can do these amazing visual landscapes. And then people who know the stuff, you know, the family of Frank Herbert. People like Kevin J. Anderson is creative consultants on the film. He's brought together a range of people who I think get it. And you really yeah. see that on screen. Not only visuals, I think, should get an Oscar nomination or, or, or awards. I, I think the entire sound department, the sound design on this film is astonishing and not just Zimmer's weird as hell soundtrack, but just, just the sounds and everything that go with it. The, the, the whole sounds, you know, the whole soundscape was for me so immersive. And luckily, I mean, I only got to see it in an Odin cinema, which, which, you know, their, their sound and screen is usually not that great, mm. but I think they, they turned it up a notch and there were moments of conversation of, of of dialogue that was sometimes hard to discern uh there was some whispering going on in in the tent in Arrakis mm. between lady jessica and and paul and there was there, it, i found it i found it difficult to understand sometimes but then you go into the cockpit of an ornithopter and just the sound design there with the visuals was so incredible so i think the sound department needs to get across the board awards because i think it's just it's sound incredible 100 percent, 100 percent. you know sound and you know uh score I, I am going to be talking more about the score uh on between the notes uh, my film music show uh with sean wilson which we're recording uh, at the in next week uh and we're gonna we've you know we've got the soundtrack to play on there a bit as well which is nice so you know we, we're going to go in depth on hans Zimmer's score but i think that again with the sound is amazing compliment i think they work in tandem brilliantly you know and and i was a bit i was a bit worried about that i kept thinking will will the actual sound and will it will it the the sheer power of it drown out the score you know yeah and i shouldn't have been i suppose i shouldn't have been scared because it's hans zimmer (laughs) you know hans Hans zimmer's the master of the kind of thing (laughs) but but a lot of his score is quite melodic and it's quite ethereal you know, you've got a lot of the chorus of the uh, 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 kind of thing going on, and, yes. it, and that, but that never gets drowned out. It really sort of meshes with the sound design in this, and it all comes together. I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, I listened to uh, 
between the notes quite a lot. So I'm going to be interested to hear. Yeah, you're our one view. listener. You're our yeah. one listener. Yeah, cheers for that. Yeah, <laughs> but but um, you know, I'm 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 quite aware of Sean's viewpoint on the Zimmer as yeah. you know what he calls a package. But I think I think he spreads his wings a little bit on this soundtrack. There's there's elements of Dark Knight stuff in here, but there's also elements of Gladiator. I think in certain yeah um, kind of motifs, especially Definitely. the female vocalist. So I think yeah. he's he you know he's he's created. Uh, a wonderful soundscape it is loud because his soundtracks are always loud but i think again that adds to the film i think it adds to the immersion of it it's interesting how vinerva said that he thinks the score would have been different because obviously they had they had a, a year's break with this where it was supposed to be out last year covid19 hits it gets delayed a year and it gave, it gave him time to not change the film but he said it gave him time to tinker on it but one of the interesting things he said was that he thought the, the longer time, because Hans Zimmer is a massive Dune fan as well, and he's always wanted to score Dune, a Dune movie. And it gave him apparently more time to tweak certain things. And and Villeneuve's convinced that the score that they've got now, after the, the effects of the pandemic, as, is, a, is a better score. And it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, go into a bit more depth on that, yeah, yeah, and what that means. But yeah, that combination of things, I think, is, is, is a brilliant part of the package. Just getting back to the the, the plan a bit, though. What do you do, what do you think about the decision to split the book in two? Because that's one of the th- first things that Villeneuve, when he got the gig and he started writing it with um, the Eric Roth and John Spates as well, um, who has form for this kind of big stuff. You know, he did things like Prometheus as well. Is that yeah? They said right, let's halve it. Let's do it in two bits. But you know, the, and the inspiration was the adaptation of Stephen King's It a few years ago. Which again made a lot of sense because that book is like a thousand pages long. So I, I think the decision to split that film, that story in two, was a good one. You know, for better or worse in terms of the movies that came out of it. But I understand that decision. Is this the right choice for Dune? Dune isn't necessarily a thousand-page novel, but it's a big story, isn't it? So do you think that was a good move doing it this way? One hundred percent. I mean, it's not a massive book in terms of pages, but it is dense. It is there is an astonishing amount of world building that goes on in the book. You can do world building in a book by words and paragraphs, but in a film, you have to do it. You know, you have to establish the world with visuals, with sound, with exposition. There's all these different ways you have to do it. And thinking about the film last night, uh, there's no padding. There's, there's, you couldn't have taken anything out of this film. And if you did, it would be detriment to the whole narrative of of the story on on film. If you think about it, he's got to establish the two houses, Atreides and Harkonnen. You have to establish the political structure of the universe and how it works with the Imperium and the and the Emperor. You have to establish the Emperor's army, the Sarduka. You have to establish the role of the Bene Gesserit and what they are, the cultural and social structures of all the houses and the Fremen, the ecology mm-hmm. of Arrakis, the reverential almost worship of water. There's so much stuff that you have to get down in order for the audience to understand the story. And if you put that into one film, it would have been a mess and it would all been lost so this decision risky as it is because there's no guarantee of a part two as we speak but i think it is the right decision yeah i think they've they've sort of been making noises hbo that like part part two will happen and and i i think you know vinerv said that there has been stuff that's been filmed already and it, and that is probably in, in i mean it could be that some of the stuff that was filmed for paul's visions of the things that we will see in part part two and maybe even beyond that, 
that we see in this movie have been filmed in bigger scenes already. And he's done that already. And, and so, so there's already stuff that's been filmed for part two. So I think I think it will absolutely happen. And I think I think it was always going to happen whether this film was a massive success or not. I think Warner Brothers are probably committed to this because they know ultimately it makes a lot less sense in terms of marketing and selling the, the film beyond this, beyond the release date, beyond an immediate box office, you know, in terms of Blu-rays, in terms of building. They want to build a franchise. They, you know, they, they want to build an entire universe here. They want a Game of Thrones. Everyone wants a Game of Thrones now. So they will have said the only what if this had been a flop the only thing that might have happened was Denis gets a lot less money and they say right well you're getting one more film and that's it but now the the, the, the given it's doing well and there's a huge amount of buzz the, which will absolutely get more people in the cinema I think it'd be a matter of weeks before we get a confirmation that part two is happening you know without question so I think it it will make it will make complete sense and like 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 I say I don't think they would have put part one on the on the front on the exactly. titles yeah. if they never planned to make a part two so but yeah it is I, I think you're absolutely right about the world building i mean do, does he do it i mean that's the thing does he manage to get it get it all in there well you know is it organically does all that kind of stuff you've mentioned there does it organically come through in the movie for the most part yes uh, and i and i think the visuals have a lot to do with the world building because you know mm. you've got the very very distinctive and recognizable motifs of the different worlds got say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy the chumba life is for everybody so go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details Caladan is is wet and rainy and lush uh, you got Gidi Prime or Gidi Prime how do you pronounce that Gidi Prime I think it's, Prime? it's Ga- Gidi Prime I think Gidi, yeah, Gidi Prime. Prime very it could be any classic. of them could be any of them Luke, uh, Luke you know it could be any of them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's just choose yeah. one and go with it <laughs> yeah because that world is very cavernous and gothic and oppressive and then you've got Arrakis, which is arid and bright and desolate, but beautiful. So you, you've got very visually distinctive places, which is easy to, you know, without saying we're on planet Arrakis now, even though they did have some, you know, some placard, you know, some cards to tell you. But but you could just tell by just by looking at the screen. So he's he's managed to do quick world building through visuals rather than having a lot of exposition, even though there is quite a bit of exposition. But it's done very cleverly through dialogue Um I like you know I I I hate exposition exposition between two characters who already know that information so that you know they're just telling the audience but mm. they managed to do it here in a way that Paul is learning about Arrakis yes. and we're learning in the process with him which I love absolutely yeah that is exactly right that's exactly what I was going to say it it the nature of the story allows that to happen you know quite flowingly because all the way through Paul is going on a journey even when he's on Caladan and he's being tested by the Bene Gesserit and all these things. 
we're learning about things as we go through that. And, um, you know, and you know, you get, you'll get the odd scene where, I mean, a good example of the one where you've got two characters talking about things they already know is when Jessica's talking to um, the Reverend Mother and she's saying, you were the one who wanted to bear the son and you were the one who wanted to get the quiz out. And that's all a bit like, okay, well, they already know this. But I think you can forgive those moments, particularly when they're, they're shot with such power. And they're they're acted in so I mean you know Charlotte Rampling as Gaius Helen Moeam he's a mate, brilliant casting oh, absolutely brilliant casting yeah you know I, I, as soon as I heard that I was like yes spot on someone like that who can be really cutting and cold and chilling brilliant and and Rebecca Ferguson is fantastic as Lady Jessica as well I don't think you again I think she's perhaps one of the best people you could have cast and I say that divorced from the fact that I think she's brilliant I do genuinely think she's she's really good casting. Um, so when you have those two in that kind of scene with all the, I mean, they're literally, there's a thunder, there's a witch, witchy style thunderstorm going on right around them as they're having that conversation. I was like, oh, this is, this is fantastic. This is so good because it's about the mood of these, you know, the Bene Gesserit are terrified in this film and that's exactly how they should be, you know? And and the the, the whole style and the mise-en-scene of it is, is designed to immerse you in that. So I think really... If there are any moments where you have exposition and world building that isn't necessarily organic, it's it's shot in a way that that you can get away with it. And I do think that's seldom. I like you say. I think it goes through Paul so often. You know, even when they're learning about the still suits, they're learning about them as we're learning about them because they need to do it because they're going out into the desert. You know, and it's, so there's all these little moments, or like Duncan coming back and reporting on things. But it makes sense. And then at the same time, you're constructing a picture in your mind. So I think that I think considering the amount they have to set up and do, I think it's done in a really immersive and organic way. And it's never at the expense of either the character development in the film or how you visually convey these worlds. And I, and I you know, it, you, the film for me never just stops and starts talking about what we need to know. No, 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 it doesn't. And it, you know, this this film's got like a two and two two hours forty five minute runtime. I think near enough mm. there anyway. And it never, yeah, it never feels slow. It it, it actually no. moves at quite a pace. So yeah. that in itself just tells you how much how much you you've got to get through in 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 that long runtime. There's a lot to do. You know, you've got to establish the the the, the Atreides house on on Caledon. The fact that they've been you know they've been given Arrakis. You've got to work out that the Emperor's kind of laid a trap for them because he basically wants to get rid of Atreides because he sees them as as a threat. So there's all these all this political intrigue, but you never sit there going, Oh look, it's a bunch of people talking about the political Yeah structure of the film. It's done in a very propulsive, natural way. And and you know, I think really, you know, when I said earlier about a HBO series, I think in something like that could get bogged down in that kind of stuff. If you had to yes, it could. do a ten-part story, you might have had half an episode set in the you know the the Landsrad or you know the Imperial Chambers, and it's just people talking about, about talking about spice production, and everyone would be sitting there going, "What? What? I don't care. Like, I don't care about this." The fans would be fascinated. Oh yeah, we're hearing about all, but you know, your Commonwealth Garden audience are going to go, well, "Who's bothered about that? Where's the story?" You know, and that's the thing. He, he, I think Villeneuve understands the story needs to keep unfolding. Paul's journey needs to keep unfolding. And I did wonder, I did think, because this is two parts, I did wonder how long they would spend with certain things when they either in, on Caladan or when they get to Arrakis without there being a lot of action. Because in theory, there could be a lot of talky stuff going on. You could have had lots of different talky scenes with, you know, people like the Shadow Mapes or UA or, um, you know, Fufa Howat and all these people. It doesn't really. It, tr- it trims a lot of that back. 
I mean, maybe to the detriment. I mean, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of Shadak Mapes, for instance, you know? So, uh, you know, so maybe it's a, it's a tough decision to make, I think. It is. There, there, there's two places, there, there's two things that I, I kind of wish we got a little bit more. And this comes from Mel, my partner, you know, from someone who, who hasn't read the book. She was a little bit confused about Dr. UA and his motivations yeah. for what he does, because his plot his plot thread is very very streamlined it's cut back to the point when 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 Duke Atreides gets the gets the the dart on his back and and the doctor comes in and explains Mel leaned into me and went who's that again yeah. so he's yeah. not on screen that long and I just wish we got a little bit more I'd love to have heard about his his conditioning and the souk school and you know mm. how the doctors are trained um, and just a little bit about his wife, and maybe finding out that the you know the Baron's holding his wife. Just so, just a little bit, just to let us know what his motivations are and why he does what he does. It does come out of the blue a little bit because of his lack of screen presence. Yeah, I, I agree there. I agree. At least he's appropriately culturally cast, though. Yes, unlike absolutely. The eighty-four film where it's Dean Stockwell from fucking <laughs> Quantum Leap, and I, I, I love I love yeah. Dean Stockwell. Oh, I love dear. him, but. He's not supposed to play Dr. Um But like, yeah, it, it was it was good casting, I think, in general. But yeah, some of those characters who definitely have more meat on the bone in terms of, you know, the wider Dune universe in the book get short shrift here. And it'd be interesting what Mel said. It'd be interesting to see if my wife, Steph, feels the same, actually, when she watches it. Cause she hasn't read the book. So we'll, we will watch it together, hopefully soon. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if she has similar comments, really, because I think she might at certain points with this. So some of that was a bit pared back, but I think... I think overall, you see, I th- I think it's pretty faithful. What do you think? Do you think it's fairly uh, it adapts this book without cutting too much fat off the bone? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I do. I mean, that's just a niggle of mine. You know, the whole thing with with uh, with with UA. And you know, personally, I would have liked a little bit more about Thufir as a mentat and learnt a bit more about the mentats. Um, but that could be something that it could go into in 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 part two so it's niggled but for the most part i think they are incredibly faithful really faithful you know they have got the right what i call keystones of the plot so all the right events that need to happen to in in order to move the story forward and to help you understand Mm. uh what's going on to establish that paul is this chosen one this this uh muddy as as they call him so I, i i think it's very faithful particularly in terms of theme i think all the themes that 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 Herbert put in his book are very much present in the film. Mm. And I, I really appreciate that, you know, the, the, the whole environmentalist theme. Some people may say it's a bit overt and a bit too much. Bring it on, I say, because I don't think enough, <laughs> I, I don't think enough sci-fi literature propels it enough. And I think it's, yeah. but it's done in a very subtle way, I think, on film. And mm. it really shows that, you know, colonisation, invading foreigners' countries, ripping the resources from the, you know, it's it's all stuff that is really relevant right now in in this time, and I I love the fact that they've they've put that quite at the forefront of the film. So that yeah. you know, in, in that terms, it's incredibly faithful to the thematic source material, and I I really appreciate the fact that he's kept that in there. But that's that's I mean that's the key though to the book, isn't it? I mean this is one of the things that you know uh, when I've read about, I've been reading around it a little bit. In that Herbert was quite visionary in, in that context. You know maybe in terms of the cultural appropriation side of it, yes, it's dated. But I think in in terms of what it's saying about the oncoming storm of climate and natural resources being mined and and exploitation and and uh, by you know 
co- colonial forces, I think it was quite prescient because we're still seeing that today. You know, we may not live in a world of, you know, old school imperial colonialism, but there is there are lots of arguments that there's still lots of colonialism going on through nations like America, China, Russia, all these different things that maybe are, are the same concept, but in different, you know, modern capitalist ways. So to actually really sort of hit the nail on the head with the, the idea of spice being oil, which is essentially what it is in this case. That's 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 the that's the resource that it that's the allegory for. Um is is really important and it's pointed. And and you know they, they and I think hopefully more will be done with this in future stories, future films and stuff. But it's you know the fact that we see Kine's laboratory, essentially, you know, the the station with the plants growing and the point is made that Arrakis could be verdant. You know, there is a whole layer of water under the and this is massively in the book you know herbert writes a lot about this the ecology side of it because that's what that's what made him write the book in the early 60s you know he'd studied ecology he'd studied you know um desert life and all this kind of, he, he, he knew a lot about it and it's in the book so i think to actually put that in there and show these plants and make the point that yes the only reason arrakis is not like this and he, he is that there's this commodity that is being mined and exploited for everyone's game you know, and that, that's that's the key thing with Dune. One of the great, one of the great things about it is just how important spice is, because it's not just a leisure thing. It's not even just a thing that enhances your, your mental powers. It is literally what powers space travel. You know, without spice, you can't travel anywhere. You know, essentially the the entire, you know, geopolitical structure of Dune's universe collapses without this commodity. So. It, it's fascinating, really, in that it's it, that's why there's such a battle waged around this, and how you know it tethers to the modern day. In that, yes, okay, we could survive without oil, but it'd be bloody hard given how integrated the world is on that commodity, and it's how do you transition out of that? And and June being in a very um, imperial feudal society, it's not a democracy that these people live in. It is a feudal society based on. Yeah. I mean, really, if you you only have to look at how the Atreides Atreides addressed, it's very fascist. You know, it, there's no there's no suggestion that the Atreides are necessarily our kind, benevolent rulers. You know, yes, Duke Leto's an honourable man and he thinks in an honourable way, but who's to say that Caladan isn't ruled with a bit of an iron fist? Because that's kind of the impression I got in how they're dressed and how they're how the armies are. Atreides, Atreides. You know, they're not. Yeah. It, they doesn't. They don't strike me. He doesn't strike me as a UN diplomat. <laughs> you know. So ultimately, yeah, well, it, it, we, it's quite a fascistic imperial universe, and I think it, it very much reflects that. I mean, you only have to look at Stilgar's behaviour when he approaches the Duke in the in, in the chamber. You know, he. Oh, he's brilliant. Yeah, yeah Bardem's brilliant in he's that fantastic. scene. But he he approaches yeah. the Duke exactly the same as he'd he'd approach a Harkonnen. He he, you know. To him, they're an off-worlder and they're an oppressive force. That is it. So Duke Leto might be promising an alliance with with the Fremen and that they have much more peaceful resources. But at the end of the day, they are there to harvest spice for the Emperor. Yep. So they are an oppressive force and Stilgar treats him as such. And, you know, I think if if there's ever... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. A more um, 
glaring example of how capitalist that 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 society is is that when the worm is approaching the harvester the harvesters will not leave until the very last minute because they have to keep pumping in the spice they have to keep the money rolling and they will not leave until until it's done and so i mean you know they've been brainwashed by 80 years worth of capitalist Mm. harkonnen rule so it's it's you know, it, there, there are glaring themes there. You don't have to look very hard because they are there. Exactly, and and that, and you know, that that's that moment, isn't it, where Leto says, "Forget the spice," and everyone looks at him and say, "What?" You know, because the spice is deemed more important than the human lives, and that's where, you know, and the book does this as well. You get, you know, Leto is is still portrayed as a noble man, uh, and and but it's almost, it's almost at odds with what he's but what he's part of because ultimately he services to the empire you know he, he says you know we will go where we will go where we are told you know we will follow the rules and then he, he's ultimately betrayed by the emperor that i would assume we're going to see in part two because he's like the he's a bit like the palpatine lurking in the background of all this now the way they've set him up which is quite i quite like that in a way where there's an expectation of what he's going to be like now and this is why you have to portray and this isn't the fault this isn't the fault in any way but it's uh, because it's from the book but this is why you have to portray the harkonnens as inhuman you know there is even a line in this which says they're not human they're savages or whatever they're brutal. and they are yeah, yeah. i love his they delivery are. of that line they're brutal. They're brutal. <laughs> yeah it's amazing yeah really good i and, love brolin you know, in this film brolin's brilliant in this film yeah he's great he's great i really hope i really hope that gurney survive has survived because we don't know at this stage so yeah. if i remember rightly I really hope he pops up again in part two because Josh Brolin is just great fun. And he doesn't get a vast amount to do in this, but he makes a real impression. But uh, but yeah, it, the Harkonnens are just so like almost, I wouldn't say comically evil, but they are, you know, they are the, the epitome of inhuman monsters. The Barons, brilliantly played by Stellan Skarsgård, who again, I saw that cast and I was like, oh yes, yes, that's spot on. You know, he's this lurching monster. I love the the fact the floating has been retained, you know, from the original movie as well. And then he he glides over and he's just this corpulent monster. And then you've got Dave Bautista, again, great casting as the Beast Raban, who's just this... I love the fact that that scene where you just see him chopping the heads off. You know, (laughs) I was like, yes, that's good. That's good. And Peter DeFries, who is much... I mean, all all credit to Brad Dourif, because Brad Dourif's great in anything. But this is a much more accurate, I think, Peter DeVries in oh, here. Oh, yeah, definitely. Played by David Dasmalchin. He's proper, you know, bald-headed, weird. He's like he's like a he's like a, a, a an evil sort of male witch in this. He's great. So you've got that real world. I mean, Christ, let's talk about it now. That spider. Like, what the, the hell was spider. that? I oh, was, my God. Uh, well, I can only think it's a bit of a callback to Enemy, Villeneuve's movie. Have you seen Enemy? Uh, no, I haven't. Well, I don't want to spoil Enemy, but there is a spider in Enemy, and when you see it, you'll never forget that moment, basically. I can only assume it's partly a callback to that film, but also just the sheer fucking weirdness <laughs> of this so giant pet spider. <laughs> and that scene that scene underscores that balance between weird and, and populist in just how then you get Moeam go, get out, in the voice. Yeah. And, the sp- and I was like, oh, this is so weird and strange and creepy. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Let's, I mean, um, let's talk about the sound design of the voice. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jesus yeah. Christ. I, I, I thought it was ter- absolutely terrifying. Really, really quite. It's just so weird. So yeah, just, yeah. I, I don't know. And the way they did it where they would kind of muffle and almost silence what they were saying and then the voice would come a bit afterwards 
as though yeah, it's yeah. like out of yeah. time. I loved it. I thought it was so effective. Yeah, you're right there in the sort of out of time, sort of just disjointed, but you know, angry, sort of savage. Because it's all a mind control, essentially, isn't it? The voice. It is. It is like it's a. <laughs> it's like the more severe, weird version of the Jedi mind trick, basically, yes. isn't it? Instead of you don't need to see my identification. <laughs> this is like yeah. cut, cut the rope. <laughs> Neil, kill him. <laughs> yeah, the the um, the escape for the ornithopter scene where Lady Jessica, man. I mean, you feel the full force of what the voice can do in that moment because her voice sounds terrifying. And the sound design, like you said earlier, really amps that up when you're in that kind of space because you hear it sort of go right through you in many ways. Uh, and it's something I really want to see sparingly used in a way over these films. I don't want the voice to become too common because then it will really impact when you hear. And I mean, it'll be great when we get to the point where we hear Paul properly do it on someone because he's not quite got there yet. You know, he's still sort of in training with that. But eventually he's going to let rip and he's going to do it in a bigger way than anyone else. So well, when he has his outburst in the 10, uh, I'm not going to lie. I did jump a little bit off my seat. I wasn't expecting yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I was a bit, oh, wow. So that shows the effectiveness of, of, of that, you know. Let's talk, while we're on this, let's talk a little bit about this general weirdness then. So you've got that spider, which is really dis- disturbing to see, and it sort of adds to the aesthetic of the Harkonnens. Was there anything else that really leapt out at you in terms of that balance between the strangeness and the, the uncanniness? Like I said earlier, I, I loved when the Herald arrives at the very beginning on Caladan, when it opens up, there's a carpet. There's a massive carpet. I was like, that's just odd. I like that. That's just uncanny, a little bit uncanny. But what, is, were there anything else that really hit you in terms of that? I, I mean, what I, what I really found was that, I mean, the entire film had a very surreal, dreamlike quality to it. And it, it works because, because the film is, you know, is the film has these visions of Chani all the way through and they permeate the entire narrative. So, the, the, I mean... It's what I was talking about earlier about about this flirtation with audience access- accessibility and making it feel weird. And what he's done is just made the, the entire film has a weirdness to it, just by the way it's shot and the the interspersion of these visions and and when he when it, when he digests the spice in the harvester rescue scene and he he sees little visions of the future because that's what it does. It makes you prescient in the moment. Yeah, yeah. So you can see little little clips into the future just it was there was just a general weirdness i think to it and i i was so happy i smiled through the whole film because i was like i'm so glad it feels a bit weird because if if, yeah. it, if it had felt a bit generic sci-fi i i think it would have mm. failed at what at what i was expecting the film to be i think a lot of the costume design was very weird the bene Gesserit outfits with a massive tall kind of uh, over-exaggerated nun kind of cows, but like, these tall, towering things that they walk. I thought that was yeah. very strange and very weird. And yeah, yeah, you know, just the general art art design. I loved that huge copper kind of plaque they had on the wall of the worm, which is a real yeah. actual thing they built and made. They didn't. It's not CG. It's there. Yeah, you know, just just in general, I think I think the tone. I think the tone of the film is very foreboding and is kind of laden with doom. But the book is. The book's very... You're reading the book and you just feel as though something bad's going to happen all the time. And Villeneuve, you know, he manages to do that and have this kind of oppressive atmosphere throughout the entire... Even when you're in a massive open space like the desert, it feels oppressive. 
And yeah, how yeah, he's does. done that, I think, is fan- fantastic. Well, considering his lens is, is massive, you know, he's filmed on IMAX and he's got these incredible vistas, uh, you know, whether it's the Guild ship in space, which is just like this massive, it's like a worm itself. It's like this open, hollow sort of worm creature, M- you know. M- Mel called it a bumhole in space. Well... <laughs> Well, to be fair, though, the worm, the worm is a bit anusy. When you see it up close, it is a bit anusy, it, it to be fair. It is a little bit anusy, yeah. But, that, but it was <laughs> incredible, like, to see that worm in, in that way, you know, and it will be even better when eventually we see Paul riding it and all that, when we get to all that stuff. On that, on that it, it is both the, 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 um, the macro and the micro in many ways, in terms of, it's an intimate story, but it's filmed in this grand way. And then when you have those intimate moments where he is starting, to, I mean, that's and that's the key thing with this story, you know, the idea of him being the one, you know, this messiah, is very much laid into Paul's journey. He knows this is what's going to happen. He knows very early on that this is what's expected of him, which is what he might be. And it is about the transformation of Paul is from the noble, the, the noble, innocent son of a duke, who in theory could have had the same kind of life as his dad, to someone who is completely corrupted by the idea of power. And, th- and that is ultimately the journey that, that, that Paul Atreides goes on throughout the whole of his story and we're seeing it layered in here because like you say we're getting the visions to stuff we haven't seen yet like where he's fighting with all these skills these eyes are blue or when he's he's standing on the ship overlooking Caladan with Chani and you know all this stuff to anyone who hasn't read the books they're going to be like wow like they're showing us like the and but it is you know it's it's all the things he's seen have come true so far you know he sees Duncan's death and it happens although if you've read the books you'll know that Duncan comes back eventually in a way which will be a good way to get Jason Momoa back because he was great in this but you have you know you have all of these things that he's seen he's seen them happen and and they've come true so there's nothing to say that you know all of these things he's seen will will won't happen in that exact way so yeah having that all the way through adds a different complexion to a story that otherwise could have been a young man on an adventure you know in the, in with all these different things, all these heroic elements, it's not like that. He's he's already been corrupted by visions of this strange and dark future where he knows he a war is waged in his name. You know the Mwadi and and you know the Lisa Al Gabe and all these things that are. Co- I mean, I loved I loved the little things like where they're talking in the Fremen language. There's a great moment where he's it's when he's got the still suit on, he's put it on perfectly, and Kind says. He will know our ways, even though he's never, mm, you know, yes. been, you know, and, and, and she, but she says it in a dialogue and they're like, what? And I'm, that's great. That's so much better than something being said out loud or, you know, a voiceover or because it's layering in the continued idea that there is a destiny. There is a plan unfolding, which is exactly what the Bene Gesserit are trying to do. But there's the idea that there's this broader cosmic plan happening at the same time. So it's great the way that's all layered in. The, the scene in, in the tent that I referenced earlier on is also very important because it, it has something to do with the direction that Paul goes in the fact that he 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 knows what the Bene Gesserit are doing to him and he knows that this prophecy that the Fremen have has, has been layered in to the Fremen culture over centuries. You know, the Bene Gesserit are, mm. are manipulators of, of people. They, they they plant these prophecies in, 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 in people's minds. And they're not really prophecies. They're basically manipulated events that, you know, they, they control everything that happens. And bloodlines. And bloodlines, exactly. So Paul's journey and his anger and his rage comes from the fact that he knows he's been manipulated. Mm. And I, I find his relationship with his mother absolutely fascinating. It's one of the most intriguing relationships because... They're both 
they're both torn in between these two worlds as mother and son and Bene Gesserit and Mahdi. So they're both torn in these two worlds and they both want to try and love each other like mother and son, but there's so much that gets in the way of that. And I find that... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the book, it's amazing, but in the, in this film in particular, I think it's uh, it's what it's the emotional heartbeat of the film. I think is is the relationship mm. between those two. Yeah, and it, like you say it's, it is there in the book, and it, and those two do a really good job in that way. And you write about manipulation. I was just thinking about this in that everyone's being manipulated in this story. Really, if you think about it, you know, you've got the Atreides being manipulated by the Emperor and walk into a trap, but you've also got you've and you've got Paul obviously and, and everything. But you've also got the Harkonnens being manipulated because the Bene Gesserit are absolutely doing this as part of the plan. They are in league with them and, and, and you know, they go to them and they help them because they know that ultimately they're trying to, if Paul is the Kwisatz Haderach, this is kind of what has to happen. So everyone is, is being manipulated, even when they think they're not, they don't think they are. In fact, the only person who knows for sure that he's being manipulated is Paul it's throughout this yeah. story. And that's, and that's all, and that's how the story, you know, unfolds and everything like this. And I think, I, I think, that the, the I think the acting is very good. I think they managed to sell a lot of this. I think I think for for one thing, the the dialogue isn't too arch. You know, there are moments of comedy. You know, there's that uh, there's a lovely moment. I, I think it was from the trailer. But when uh, Paul and Duncan are talking to and Duncan says, "Oh, you put muscle on. You put muscle on." He goes, "Have I? No." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's great. That's a nice little human moment. And I think they managed to humanize the characters a lot more than they you know, given it's set in like ten thousand one ninety one. That could have happened, and I think that's a big reason why the this this cast managed to pull these characters off. Yeah, I mean, the book can be quite cold, so I, I you know, and I know that there have been some discord, not discord, discourse from fans about adding the bit of humour. But I think having that humour at the beginning of the of, of the film, as you said, it humanises them. Um, it, it's a great way of encapsulating Duncan and Paul's relationship together as well. Yeah. I think it, it, it does it in a really small amount of time, and you, and you get to know that these two are good friends, and they and you know and they love each other. So it, having that humour in there really does that in a very succinct way. So I, I'm, I, I for one, I'm glad they, 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 you know, that, that they've put it in. Same. I, th- I think the relationship between Paul and Duncan in this is way better than the 84 movie. Oh yeah. And I can't, re- I can't, I can't remember the, um, the, the miniseries, but it, it's really, you know, yes, they've turned Duncan Ido into a bit of a Han Solo slash Momoa sort of hybrid, but fine, fine. Right. Okay. We get it. We understand. Um, I mean, Momoa is Momoa you know, in anything he does. Exactly. Isn't he? He's, he's so, exactly. You know. He's always a little bit like that, but it, it works. He's great. He's full of charisma. He's great fun to watch, and you know you need those kind of characters, people to root for. You know, you've got that scene where Duncan's escaping Arakeem when they're, they're you know, they're, there's a battle going on, and um, 
And, you know, he's flying the awning and all this kind of thing. And it's great. It's a proper, like, yes, come on, come on, you can do it. You know, it's that it's that whole idea that you need that to go through this. Kind. And that's where the balance between the weird and the populist goes on. You know, on the one hand, you've got cut to Seleucia Secundus and you've got the weird sort of oh, 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 chanting thro- going that on. That throat and, chanting was like, that yeah. was weird. I loved it. It's brilliant. It's yeah. so strange. And you've got all that happening. And then you cut to Duncan flying an awning through like he's in, like he's going through the Death Star or whatever. It's, <laughs> it's, and that's that's fine. You know, I think you need, I think the, the film needs that balance. It really does. Because yeah, it does. It, you know, you ultimately as well, I, I, don't, I can't imagine many Dune fans wouldn't love to see that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, if why are you a fan of Dune? You know, yes, you want the esoterica. Yes, you want you know, um, the weirdness and the strangeness. But I would wager that most Dune fans want to be swept up in this world and, and be excited and be thrilled by what they see on screen. And I think Villeneuve really does that. You know, he, he creates some you know, some, some fantastic set pieces. You know, the Arakeen sequence, for one, the uh, the rescue of the Harvester, you know, and the fact that the worm is, 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 they turn the worm essentially into like Jaws. You know, they make that worm into very much that ominous and you don't see all of it until the very end. And all the way through, they slowly build that up. You start to see some of the more at the beginning. You only see it rippling through, and it's terrifying. This idea, you don't know what the fuck is that, you know, going to be. And I think that's great, you know. And the suspense around, you know, using the thumpers and all these kind of things is absolutely spot on. And I think you, you've got to have that balance between the excitement and the, you know, the the the, the weird, creepy horror of, you know, put your hand in this box, and and that's what this does. I, I think the ornithopters are a triumph of design. I think they are yeah. absolutely fucking brilliant. I, mm. You know, the way they move, they look like dragonflies. Yeah. The way they move, yeah. it's just, it's just, it, 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 it's great. It's, it's, it, it's as though they knew what an ornithopter looked like in my head because that's exactly yeah, yeah. how I picture them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And that's I love the way that they put you in the cockpit. You know, they put you in the cockpit. They put you in the driver's seat in some of the shots, and the you know. The bit where uh, Leto nosedives down to to rescue them, it is just so kind of whoa, pin back yeah. in the seat, going, "Oh my god, yeah. it was brilliant, fantastic." Yeah, it's fab, and and the the sandstorm where Paul and Jessica are in that um, that oh, craft yeah. as well. I mean, that was, that was incredible. You know, that was the the sound and the visuals at that point. You just feel like you're in there with them, and and you were just like, "How the hell are they going to get out of this?" And it's so it's so good. It's so the the, the production design on that level as well is awards worthy because they really do manage to build this world out and create it. Um, and I think you get that in so many scenes. I mean, going back to the, the Gom Jabbar, the hand in the box, it's just so well done. Like in the book, that's a really, that's a really seminal moment in Dune where you've got Jessica going, fear is the mind killer, fear is, you know, outside while, while uh, Moeam is putting Paul's hand in the box and she's got the needle to his, and she goes, you know, and it's pain is in the box. And the way that's done, I mean, Chalamet actually sucks off there for me. Like, yeah. it, it's so good. So you've got all these these moments and these things that you've seen in your mind for years really brought out in an incredible way, I think. The one scene I was really hoping they'd, they'd have in there was the Hunter Seeker scene in his bedroom. Oh, um, yeah, which was that was great. Absolutely brilliant. And I love the yeah, way yeah, yeah. I love the way he used the projection as a as a way to mask his himself and the and the hunter seeker comes right up to his eye oh it was just a really good tense scene it was so well done yeah they they really nailed that they've really nailed those moments that in the book you're like oh um and yeah i I think i think they did they did great and again it's weird it's you know the hunter see the idea of this hunter seeker this little thing is weird and and they've and they've kept i just love it I'm, i'm gonna keep saying i love how it's how it's weird but it's because it is a weird book 
So I'm glad they yeah. make it feel weird. And yeah, yeah this it's... this idea of this little insect machine type thing. But the detail of, of the shields as well and how these things go through the shields, it's exactly Love right. It. You know, it's exactly right from in the books. You know, and, and it's never too... I mean, one of, the, one of the questions that I saw an, in, an interview asked was, what you know, why is there no computer technology? And Villeneuve, what point, say, somebody said, I think it might be the production designer said, well, you know, in the history of the law of Dune, there was a big war and they, they, they got rid of all AI, basically. That's why it's all quite analogue, because in the legend of Dune, basically there was a Terminator scenario where you had AI try and take over the universe, so they shut it all down. So that's why it's an analog story, even though they've got all these, these these things that can fly. It's all based on very sort of grounded technology. It's not like Star Trek where they've invented a warp drive and they can zip across the galaxy. They yeah. need a resource. They need a physical thing in order to power space travel. They build crafts that operate on gravity. You know, they, there's no indication that these things are necessarily powered by all these fancy sort of technological gizmos. You know, there's, it's all quite old-fashioned in a way and i think that's that's a great in terms of the visuals of dune it's a great representation of that balance between old and new you mentioned the the mural earlier in arakeen and that was that they, they were talking about how they that was designed in the sense of that they wanted to create an environment where a world has been colonized but it's a hodgepodge of different kind of styles whether it's fremen influence whether it's harkonnen influence and that the the Fremen would have who worked there would have created this mural about the worm, and in all, in, in the same way that you would have had in ancient Greek or ancient Egyptian sort of temples to depict particular important moments of their mythology. And obviously, they worship the, the worm as Shai Halut. You know, it, that's the that's their god. The worm is essentially their god. And so that's a brilliant attention to detail in that you get the camera linger on that mural for a time. But you don't necessarily need to know any. It doesn't explain it as, as such. That that came from an interview outside. But I love that. I love that idea of the depth of how they've thought about this and they've managed to put these visuals in. And and I think that's that's the kind of thing you you haven't seen in other adaptations before. And I, I and, and I think it just helps enhance this level of mythology without it being overcoming. Without it without you sitting there feeling like you need a dictionary. And a, a good cheat for that as well is the the. Um, the teaching aid that Paul hears as well. So he's, he's hearing about the Fremen's history and, and stuff from this voice through a tape recorder. And I was like, yeah. that's good. That's a clever way. He's learning. He's a young man. He's learning. But it's a great way of exposition as well. So I think it's they, they never drown you in mythology, but they hinted it. And I think that's perfect. Yeah. And that thing you're talking about there with, you know, this hodgepodge of, of, of culture and stuff, it really adds to the, to the colonialism of, of, of Arrakis and the fact that Arrakis has always been has always been ruled by off-worlders by foreigners so you get this mixture of of different architecture different art and and everything and it's you know you could you could easily uh use an analog like British colonialism in India for you know for example yeah, where, yeah, yeah, where you've got yeah. very British architecture in this in you know in this Indian land where where you, you know they've got their own uh, kind of architecture and, and and beauty and it's it's all mixed with this c- colonialistic british empire type stuff so it's the it's the same thing on arrakis you know they've 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 never been free people they've always been they've always been governed and ruled and oppressed by mm. by outsiders and it's you really get a sense of that in this film and i'd i'd, I'd really appreciate that that is qu- quite prevalent in this movie and and yeah. and yeah. very prevalent in the behavior of the fremen and their suspicion um, of everybody basically who's not who's not of Arrakis 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that comes across very well. We, we haven't got into the Fremen yet. Too. I think that's much more for part two, I think. Get deep, oh, deep diving into the Fremen. Understandably, because that's where the book very much goes. But you've got the, the they, they've set them up really well. They've set up the culture and the cut and the customs and, you know, things like the Chris knife and all this stuff. They've set that up here in a great way to carry through into the next film. So, I mean, what what do we think is going to be in part two then? I mean, what what haven't we seen? I, I, I think we're going to get Shaddam, the emperor. Uh, I think we'll get some stuff. We, I think we might see Princess Irulan as well. I think we might... Well, I, I'd like to think we get Fade Rather, Hal Karkonen as well in the next one. Is there anything particular, yeah, you're looking forward to with that? Yeah, I think Denis has mentioned in a previous interview that, that if he gets part two, which I think hopefully he will, Fade Rather is definitely going to be in that because, I mean, yeah. he's 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 quite prominent in the second half of the book. So mm. it's, it's not a character they could really leave out, to be quite honest. No. So... Yeah, I'm looking forward to him. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, worm riding. For yes, <laughs> definitely that's going to yeah. be. Gonna, I mean, you know, that'll be fab. That kind of last battle where where Paul's riding the worms and everyone's riding the worms. That that's going to have to be so big. It's going to have to make Endgame look like a street skirmish. <laughs> that's how big it's going to have to be. I think it might. I think it, yeah. on the evidence of this film, don't bet against them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And. Um, you know, we're going to get Paul's fall and then the ascension of Muad'Dib, which will be which will be exciting. And uh, yeah, and you and you know, as you said, he's he's not the the Campbellian hero that you may think he they're no. setting him up to be. His path goes <laughs> down a very different road. Absolutely, but I'm, I'm looking forward to more Chani, some more Zendaya because she doesn't yeah. get a lot to do in this except look wistful in the in, in in the sun and the sand she's a great actress so i'm really looking forward to her actually getting some real material mm. to dig her teeth into so i'm looking forward to that as well yeah absolutely and i think i mean you know credit to Sh- timothy chalamet because i think he does really good work in this and oh, i think he great. really he really puts across a paul that you believe is innocent and then you start to believe he's darkening as the as it goes on already and i think I think he's a great. I think he, you know, there's a lot of people who might just think he's a bit of a pretty boy, but he's not. He's already proven he's a good actor because he's done lots of other good stuff. But I think he's he really nails this. He's he is absolutely spot on. So I think him and Chani together, like you say, Zendaya's great. I think those two are off the back of each other will, will be will be terrific. And I, 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 yeah, so I think I think that will be a, the, obviously a very core part of part two. Those two, and I think you've already seen hints of that in the visions. But I, th- I, th- I think it will just expand the world further. You know, I really hope we get to see a guild navigator and what they, how they've envisaged them. You know, I think there's lots of little things we might yet we might see that are built out a bit more um, in part two. And then if we're lucky enough, you know, June Messiah. So the yeah. future's bright. Well, it's dark, but it's bright. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I am hoping we get more on the Mentats because as you were talking about earlier, you yes. know, this this kind of world where where computers aren't used and Mentats are human computers, and we didn't really get any explanation of what they were we got one visual cue where which was our first look at um what's his name Thufa 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 where his eyes go white and then he kind of yeah and comes back and you that's literally the only visual cue we get that he is not quite normal you know he's a mentor so i'm, I'm hoping is he even get... called a mentor in this no I he's not the name's not even said no so I, I really, I, I, 
I found that missing in, in, in this film. So I'm hoping part two may explain more of that. And I think if they start talking about, if, if they start looking at the guilds and, and the space guild and space folding and all that kind of stuff, they're going to have to, by its very nature, talk about the Mentat. Yeah, I think so. I, th- I think they will. I mean, Thufus just vanished from the narrative anyway. I don't quite know where he is and what's happened to him. No. My, my assumption is he's captured and he's, in, he's with the Harkonnens in that city. But like... Um, I don't know. We don't know, but I th- I definitely think they'll come back to that. Absolutely. Um, so that that's a big thing they need to sort of fill in, I think, and sketch in. So you're right. Um, but it's really exciting. There's still loads to come, and that's why I think splitting the book in two is absolutely the right decision because they are. It's one story, but they're going to be two different films in many ways in terms of what's happening. Um, so it's it's going to be. It, I'm convinced it will happen. I think it's a matter of time before we find out it's on and it's going ahead, and it'll probably be a couple of years away. I'd imagine. Yeah, I think it might be 2024. When we see that, maybe, maybe, oh, yeah, maybe twenty twenty three if we're lucky. But I don't know. I think it's about two or three years away. But, um, but even so, it's going to be fab. What about final thoughts then? I mean, is there anything we've missed? Is there anything else you want to talk about in this film? And also, what what do you think in terms of expectations? And it has it stood the test? Will it will it stand the test of time? This part one, do you think? I think it will. I mean, if you look at the history of June the book um, and how it's influenced. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Films. So, I mean, George mm. Lucas has all but admitted June was a massive inspiration for Star Wars. And you can see, oh, yeah. you can see those, um, yeah. those kind of links very, very clearly. But, you know, mm. it's, it's had its influence on, on the Aliens franchise. It's had its influence on Blade Runner. So what I love about this is that those films have a lot to thank June the book for. And I think June the film has a lot of things to thank those films for. So yeah, it's, yeah, it, definitely. there's yeah. a nice circuity to this. So I, I, I think June, the film, you know, the film will be, will, will become the cultural furniture of science fiction film. I think it's going to influence, you know, the way it's shot. Um, I'd love to see films use much more physical sets than CGI, because I know, I know that Denis wanted to have as much practical sets as possible. And you can tell because it feels mm, so yeah. real and tactile. And when you have big sets that are mainly CGI, you don't have that depth. You don't have that kind of connection with it. So no. bring on more and more practical sets. Just make them big because, I mean, it, yeah. it, you, it works better as, a, as an immersive experience, I think. so. 100%. I think I, I really want that, that feel of, you know, epic scale. And I think you get that here. I, I think it's I think it's going to stand the test of time. Yeah, I mean it, it, we won't know yet with, without the full package of part two. We won't because they haven't got the complete story. But like I say, I think they are going to be separate kind of movies, and I think you can judge this on its own merits 
as a with a beginning, middle, and an end in many ways, even if it's a, to be continued essentially, because it ends exactly where I thought it would. You know, the, this film stops at exact. I knew it would be Paul and Jessica go off with the Fremen. Is how it ends. One hundred percent. That's exactly where the heart that you that 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 is that break point is. So it makes sense completely the way they've done it. And yeah, I think I think it's fantastic. I, I'm struggling to find a way to pull it down from a full marks. <laughs> I keep thinking. I keep feeling like this is a 5 out of 5 or a 10 out of 10. I'm, I, I'm, I'm trying to find reasons it's not, and I can't see any right now. So it's fantastic. I'm so pleased because it, we've been looking forward to this for many years, and it's just so nice when a film meets your expectations, is faithful to the source material, because so many people these days fuck about with stuff. You know, they get a great property. This is This has just happened, for instance, with Why the Last Man. And that's been cancelled as a result. And you can tell why. Because it's fucked about with the, with the material. And you're like, just do it like it should be done. Like all the fans. Because, yes, okay, fandom can be toxic. And you get a lot of fans who cry that they want this and they want that. But usually, if fans are singing from a similar hymn sheet about something they love, they're probably more, uh, more or less on the money with where you should go with it. And I think Denis understands that. And I think he's one of them. And I think he gets it. I think he understands. And I think he's made a film... That is for fans. That is going to appeal to audiences for all the reasons we've talked about. Uh, and I think I think this will stand the test of time. I think this is going to go down as one of the great science fiction movies. I think you will, people will put this alongside the biggies. You know, Alien, two thousand and one. I think in the end, I think you're going to get that in terms of just quite what it's done. And isn't that wonderful it, to it, say? It is. It is. It is amazing. And to kind of take a a, a quote from Peter Jackson as well. Uh, talking about how faithful it is to the source material. Peter Jackson said that they, you know, they tried to do things differently from the Lord of the Rings books. They tried to go different directions and they always wound up going back to the source material because that's how it worked best. So I think Denis may have done, I mean, I'm hoping when it comes out on DVD, I want documentaries as, as, as in depth as the Lord of the Rings was, because I want to know every thought process and every art production kind of detail about how they did this because i reckon they did the same thing i reckon they tried to do things differently maybe try different characters and then they kind of found that if they went back to the source material that was the right way to go uh it wouldn't surprise me at all i think ultimately it all comes back and to you know nail the fundamentals of why these books and these these source material stories whether they're books whether they're comics whatever it is were so successful and i think if you can capture that then you're onto a winner and they've done it so, yeah, roll on part two, whenever that is. Um, you and I should return, I think, and cover that 100% on this podcast or whatever podcast we're doing. <laughs> Who knows where it's going to be? <laughs> Who knows? Um, it's probably, it might have evolved in something else, but we'll, yeah, we will re-team and, and talk about that, I think. So, um, so yeah, it's just been so nice to talk to you. Um, you know, somebody who, you know, I love talking to generally, but to talk about this, it's just fab, isn't it? So yeah, I'm so pleased. It's 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 been it's been a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, it has. Uh, yeah, and I think you're right. This is this is a, a science fiction film for this generation and this 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 era of you know filmmaking. Yeah, for the ages. It's just it for was the ages. phenomenal. I'm you know I think I'm gonna have to see it again a, a few more times mm. just to kind yeah. of get a, a more kind of views in it. And there's you know there's, there's little bits of dialogue that I missed that I'd like to kind of go back in here and that's just due to the alien cinema quality not the quality of the film so yeah yeah um yeah. i'll be interested to watch it on my big my big flat screen 
4K HD TV when the time comes as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's going to be fantastic, isn't it, to see it like that? So, uh, yeah, amazing, amazing. Well, um, enjoy your second one when you go. Um, and uh, we hope everyone has enjoyed listening to this. Uh, Luke, why don't you uh, let people know uh, what else you're up to on We Made This and where they can find you and things like that. Uh, I'm the host of Observing the Pattern, which is a fringe podcast. We are, well, we're literally in the last two episodes of season three. So one will be airing uh, this weekend or the weekend just gone by the time this airs. And then the, and then the last part will be the weekend after. So and then, and then we'll be taking a short break uh, and then season four will be back next year. Um, I co-host. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a it's been a weird year recording Observing the Pattern because I've done a lot of it under lockdown and I've done a lot of it out of order. Never, <laughs> never watch Fringe season three out of order because it's just a mind fuck. <laughs> so it's yeah. been re- it's been it's been incredibly enjoyable experience, but quite hard because you know the narrative structure yeah. of season three is very complicated. I also co-host two Star Trek podcasts, um, Rarely Going, which covers Lower Decks, which is now finished, but also Prodigy, which is starting soon. Very excited for that. Uh, I co-host that with Craig McKenzie, and also Make It So with Kurt North, which is our Picard podcast and that'll be that'll be starting up again in february so very excited for picard season two as well and mm, that's about it yeah, really. I, i'm more excited to hear you guys talk about it than i am to watch it for yeah. most right now <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll, see. Yeah, we'll see and also podcast 616 i'll be co-hosting with you for the hawkeye oh, yeah. segment that'd be I'm yeah, yeah, yeah 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 very excited we're, for that. we're gonna we're gonna do some of those yeah me too yeah talking about hawkeye the new disney plus uh series for marvel cinematic universe so yeah yeah if you like that kind of stuff check us out over there because that's gonna be great um, but yeah, I should have mentioned Rarely Going as well, because you guys have done great work on that. And that's that's exciting. I'm going to be on that as well. Um, and uh, I'll be cropping up, I think, on Observing the Pattern Season 4 for one episode. And uh, maybe also I'll make it so as a guest. We'll see. We'll see how good Picard is so, <laughs> to start with. And then we'll see how I feel. Uh, but uh, <laughs> So yeah, it's going to be really good seeing all those things come off and being a listener as well as contributing. So wonderful. You can find me, guys, at uh, on the We Made This Network generally at WMT underscore network. Uh, lots of fingers, lots of pies. I won't go through them all, but um, I'm pretty ubiquitous on there. So check it out. And you can find me mainly on Twitter at AJ Black Writer. And uh, you'll find links to my website, ajblackwriter.com, where you'll find my my writing, my podcasts, uh, various and sundry as well. So, uh, so yeah, thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode. Uh, and as I say, we're part of the We Made This Podcast Network. Please subscribe to Real Talk and give us a five-star rating review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help bump us up and get more people listening. And if you want to help us out uh, financially on our network, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For give us Throw a few quid at us if you go to patreon.com forward slash We Made This and you'll see what we have to offer. But Dune is not all we're discussing, sadly. So we'll give you a taste, (laughs) because I discuss it all the time, of what we might have missed on the network in just a minute. Um, But we'll see you next time uh, at the movies for more Real Talk. Elsewhere on We Made This. The Movie Palace Podcast. Nowadays, it's easy to look back, isn't it, Carl, with, with hindsight to say that this is probably one of the greatest films ever made. But at the time, it, it was barely even acknowledged by awards bodies. Like, the Oscars didn't even didn't have a, have a peep at it. Yeah, it's interesting about the awards, considering that, like you say, it's a film that's gone on to pick quite regular fixture on the list of greatest films ever made and that kind of thing. Um, from what I've seen, the reviews were pretty positive, though. Free with this month's issue. Rachel, when did you get into Nirvana? I think we discussed this last time. I'm 
a bit younger than you, so <laughs> I was two when Nevermind came out. But yeah. I distinctly remember my mum and my dad. Yeah. They had a VHS that they taped off MTV, MTV Unplugged. Oh, and awesome. And I remember watching that. It had Ren and Stimpy on as well. <laughs> and I always really liked him. And I always remember the reason my mum liked it so much is because she was so interested in his cardigan, the green cardigan that he was wearing, <laughs> which is a very sort of, you know, twee thing to enjoy. But I think he probably would have quite enjoyed that. Right in the childhood. As a weirdo kid, I always thought it would be cool if the Doctor regenerated into an alien because it never said that he had to look like look a like human. human. Yeah, that's a good point. And there was one regeneration where it went wrong. Well, they always go wrong, don't they? And there was one regeneration of the Master where it went wrong, so he was like this hideous, scarred uh, that's thing. Cool. That, that, that's very old episodes because I loved the Sylvester McCoy stuff so much that I bought... VHS tapes oh, okay. of previous doctors, so I have quite a big knowledge a of deep, deep dive. You know, stuff from way before I was born as well, stuff from the seventies. It's pretty cool. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network.